James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear... Or a grapevine bear figs, thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Amen. Father God, we submit ourselves to your word. It is our desire to respond to it in a way that would glorify your name. And Father, to live it out in this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're obviously dealing today with the subject of maturity in speech, but it's not a totally new subject. It is connected in a marvelous way, I think, to the previous section. The whole book has a, a marvelous flow of logic, and many commentators totally miss it. In fact, some explicitly say there is no connection. It's like Proverbs. You've got individual sections utterly unrelated. I don't believe that's the truth at all. And uh, so I thought I would begin the sermon today just showing a little bit of the flow into this section and then into the section that follows uh, after this. In James chapter 2... James insisted that faith without works is dead, but he also insisted that words without works were dead. For example, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He says, Your speech needs to be backed up with doing. Okay? You see the same thing in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have work? Can that faith save him? And... Um, you just keep on going. Uh, if a brother or sister uh, is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Uh, and 18, you can see the same thing. So they got a lot of words, but th those words uh, are not backed up by a walk. And such talk will never justify you before men. They want to see your actions. Now, lest we go to the opposite extreme and we say, okay, works are so important, we're just going to shut our mouths and we're going to uh, uh, not treat speech as being important at all. He spends a whole chapter saying, no, speech is very, very important. I'm not saying neglect speech. I'm saying you need to work on speech, but speech by itself is not, uh, is not enough. And so he ties this in. He says, even with our tongues, we need to be showing forth the progressive justification that chapter 2 was talking about. James came down so hard on faith without works and speech without works that people might come to the conclusion, well, we can just 
engage in good works and keep our mouth shut. And your outline, or not your outline, I guess it's in the back of the worship notes, there's a proverb in Spanish that means a closed mouth doesn't catch flies. Okay, you might assume that simply closing your mouth is going to solve the problem of your tongue. Well, we've already seen in past sermons that abstinence from something is not the solution because it doesn't deal with your heart. For example, when is a thief not a thief? I hope you know by now what the answer to that is. It's not when he just stops stealing. That's the first answer that comes out of people's mouth. Well, a thief is no longer a thief when he stops stealing. But a person may have stopped stealing for three whole weeks or three months or even three years if his last heist was big enough, you know, that it's carrying him through. But get him desperate enough, he'll be out there stealing again. Uh, or maybe he's not stealing right now because the police are out looking for whoever did this last robbery and he's scared of getting caught. There may be other reasons but according to the scripture, he still has a thief's heart and given the right opportunities, that will manifest itself. And so a thief is not a thief any longer when he is in situations where formerly he would have been tempted to steal, but far from being tempted to steal, he works hard with his hands so that he can delight in giving to other people. Uh, when is a drunkard no longer a drunkard? It's not when that person hasn't had a drink in a year. You know, just maybe has not had the opportunity to have a, a drink. A drunkard is no longer a drunkard when he is in a situation where he would have been tempted to, but he does not get drunk, where he can have a drink and it can stay at one drink. Now, there's a wisdom in if you're still wrestling with the inward principles that led to that drunkenness, you know, to avoid alcohol for a while or maybe just to drink in very controlled circumstances, like in communion or in a, a situation where you're with other people. And in the same way, there is a certain wisdom because of the power of the tongue to do evil, to keep your mouth shut for a while while you're learning on the inward principles, but James doesn't want it to stay there. He wants us to open our mouths wide in blessing. And so simple abstinence from speaking is uh, not enough. I think of the lady who talked incessantly to the doctor during her checkup, and she was somewhat of a hypochondriac, but the doctor gave her a thorough workover anyway, and he finally asked her to open her mouth and stick out her tongue, and he started writing out his prescription, <clears throat> and he said, I think this prescription will take care of what you have, and she protested and said, but you didn't even look in my mouth. He says, I didn't need to. I just needed silence for a moment while I could write in the charts. <laughs> now... <laughs> The fact that she was forced to be quiet for a while, nobody would think that that's changed her heart, right? She's still going to go back to her old ways as soon as her mouth is able to be open for a while. And in verses 13 through 18, James is going to deal with some of the motivations that lead to bad speech that need to be replaced with good motivations that lead to good speech. And he lists things like bitterness, envy, you can see how those things would lead to bad speech, right? Self-seeking, pride, deceitfulness, worldliness, sensuality, even the demonic he mentions there. And until those things are tamed, your tongue is not going to be tamed. Okay, so you can't just abstain and think that you're going to deal with things. You've got to deal with the motivations that lead to the bad speech. And so shutting your mouth is not the solution, nor is putting on all kinds of spiritual speech. 
uh, your solution to uh, taming your tongue either. Some, some people, as soon as they become Christians, they are so in love with the Lord, they, they desire to serve Him. Their first thought is, I want to go into the ministry. Uh, they want to show forth good works. And their idea of good works that uh, uh, James chapter 2 talks about is you got to be a pastor, you know, to show forth good works. They don't see that being a, an honest plumber can be good works or, or managing your family in a godly way can be good works. And so they want to go into the ministry to show forth their faith. Well, James indicates that's a very dangerous motivation. In fact, being a pastor could be an incredible liability to such a person who has not yet learned maturity in other areas of, of his life. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. He says that's the last place such a person ought to be because if he's not yet tamed his tongue, and if he's not yet matured in other areas, that's one of the hardest areas to tame. It's almost sure that he's going to fall into trouble. And so James and Paul both say we need to mature in all of the other areas of our lives before we go into teaching. Yes, we must be justified by our speech, but abstinence is not the solution. Teaching is not the solution. The solution is the heart of the issue, which is the issue of our heart. Now, just because of time limitations, I have to break off bite-sized pieces that we can go through. And the reason I mention that is that James's argument does not stop with verse 12, which is where we're going to stop today. In verses 13 through 18, he shows motivations that drive our speech. Chapter 4, he addresses the role of passions, the demonic, worldview, providence, other issues that not just drive our speech, but other uh, areas of sin as well. And until the heart underlying issues are dealt with, our speech will not be mature. Okay, so that's kind of the setting, uh, the, the context in which we're discussing this. It, it connects to the previous section. It connects to the, the following section in chapter 4. But let's dive into the text because James really does give some very practical steps on how we can conquer our tongues, which are always getting us into trouble. First step is an application of chapter 1, verse 19 which says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Now, how he words it in chapter 1 is, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We need to emphasize learning and listening in the beginning of our Christian rock rather than teaching and speaking. And the reason is because Scripture says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 10, verse 19. Well, that's exactly the reason that James gives here. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many things. We all stumble in many things. His implication is that the, the greater degree to which you speak, and you're responsible to speak, the greater the risk of sinning with your lips. And uh, one of the downsides of being a pastor is that the potential for sinning with my lips and the potential for sinning in pride uh, really escalates. He says you ought not to be going into those kinds of things when you are still uh, immature. In fact, there's many a pastor I think will receive less rewards in heaven because they're constantly nullifying all of their good works with the, the sins that accompany them. Uh, they're going to receive far less good work, I mean, rewards than um, many people who are behind the scenes. 
Closed mouths don't catch flies as easily. Now, you don't want to just stop there because obviously we've got to talk, right? So we've got to, we got to be still dealing with uh, getting ourselves to the place where we can speak and teach freely. The second step is simply having a constant realization that you are being held accountable by God for every word that you speak. He says, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, when he says that, he's saying, okay, yeah, we teachers are going to receive a stricter judgment, but that implies everyone receives a judgment. You're going to get a judgment, we're going to get a stricter judgment. But everyone is going to be held accountable for their words. Well, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 12. He says, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. God will hold us accountable for every idle word. Now, the word idle there means unemployed. So every word that is not employed for Jesus, that is not serving Jesus, is going to be judged by Jesus. Now, doesn't that blow your mind? I mean, when you think about it, how many words that have flowed from our mouths are going to be judged by the Lord? Have you weighed your words? Is every word you employ employed for Jesus or serving others? Actually, when you consider the sheer volume of words that come out of your mouth, this is something I think we need to take seriously. It's been estimated uh, that the average person speaks enough words to fill 20 single-spaced typewritten pages every day. Now, that's a massive book the size of Gary North's um, Tools of Dominion, 1,200 pages, you know, every two months. That's an enormous amount of words. Now, what are the chances of your ad-libbing 1,200 words every two months without goofing up? It's hard enough to write 1,200 words, thinking through them carefully, proofreading them, let alone speaking that many words every two months. When you realize the sheer volume of words that comes out of our mouths, we need to take seriously the fact that Jesus' lordship has to be applied to everything that we say. Our speech needs to be submitted to that in the endearing words that we say, the scoldings we say, the jokes that we give. And there are godly jokes and there are ungodly jokes, but all of it needs to be subsumed to the Lordship of Christ. Paul in Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So our words need to be employed. They need to be well chosen. E.C. McKenzie once said, if silence is golden, not many people can be arrested for hoarding. Okay? <laughs> there is such a thing as being too generous with your words. And so back to Genesis, uh, James 1, verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, the third step is to acknowledge we've all got a lot, a lot of room to grow. All got a lot of room to grow. When James uses the term perfect throughout this book, you can translate it as mature. We'll be seeing in a moment that the word perfect does not mean sinless because he says even he has stumbles in many ways. It does not mean uh, that you're totally sinless, but it means blameless. It's talking about a blameless outward life. James says we all stumble in many ways. He's including himself there. But when you recognize that we've got an inward enemy that old nature that wants to creep up and make us say things that we ought not to say, we're going to be on guard ahead of time. We're going to have preventive medicine. We're going to have put in pr into practice principles that can subdue that desire so that even if, though it's there, those words do not come out. And um, 
uh, it'll make us more on guard, less prone to stumbling. And so point D says that even though we all stumble in many ways, we must still strive to never stumble in speech. Verse 2 goes on to say that uh, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, you might be tempted to say, okay, that's just theoretical. The only person who could be that way is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't see James as dealing with the theoretical in this book. He's a very practical person. And I don't think he's just thrown away a throwaway phrase here that, uh, that uh, we're supposed to be living our lives by, and, but you can't live your life by it anyway. Uh, no, James is saying this is something that is an achievable goal. And uh, Scripture indicates that it's possible for a person to be perfect in the sense that he is outwardly in control, outwardly blameless, not sinless, but blameless. Job was said to be perfect, and yet it also says he has sin. Okay, the word perfect, uh, well, let me read the verse to you. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Well, you can tell by the eschewed that it's uh, King James Version. Modern translations translated he was blameless, but it really means the same thing. It means that even though the sin impulse was there, Job was in such control of his tongue, he did not let those words get out. For example, in James 2, I mean, Job chapter 2, it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's not saying other people thought it. God's declaration is he did not sin with his lips. So it is possible, it's an achievable goal, to have your maturity so strong you do not sin with your lips. The sin does not escape. And for me, Job's an absolutely, incredibly encouraging example that I can't tongue by God's grace. In myself, I can't. Because Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. But the scripture doesn't stop there. It says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so even though James says no man can tame the tongue, through Christ we can. And there have been many people who have done it. In fact, Paul expects us to be blameless when we are officers. He expects us to be in control of our outward, uh, of our outward lives. Even at the end of the book of Job, God says to Eliphaz, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so if you do not believe that being perfect or blameless or mature with your speech is an achievable goal, you will not have the faith to put into practice anything we're talking about this morning. I want you to be convinced this is an achievable goal, okay? That you can be mature, you can bridle your mouth by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the fifth step is to begin realizing the incredible power that the tongue can have upon the body for good. Last phrase of verse 2 says that such a man is able also to bridle the whole body. Now, there's another implication there as well. Here's a perfect man who's got a body he needs to bridle, which means what? His body is revolting, right? I mean, you can see the sin nature at work there, uh, and his body wants to do things that he's not supposed to be doing, but he's bridling this body and he's harnessing it so that it is serving the Lord. But the point is that uh, the, 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 um, the tongue, when it is in control, is able to uh, 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 bridle the whole body. He goes on, he gives uh, some other examples of small things like the tongue that were used in this um, uh, powerful way. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. 
Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, later on, he's going to be describing how the tongue can be used to inflame the body to do evil things as well. But here he's talking about the perfect man taming his body with what? He's taming his body with a little instrument with his tongue. How does he do that? Just as a, a bit causes a horse to serve the master and just as a rudder on a ship makes that ship go wherever the, the pilot wants that ship to go, he says, you can make your body go wherever you want it to go with your tongue. How does it come about? Well, it involves in part the principle of affirmations that we have seen earlier. Uh, when you affirm the truth, you make these affirmations of faith, it rouses up your faith. And what does James 2 say faith does? It works. So it's affecting your body, right? There's action that, that is there. So it rouses up faith. It routes demons. Remember in Revelation chapter 12, it says that uh, they overcame Satan by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. So it raises up faith, it routes demons, but it also can have an immediate impact upon your body. And there's all kinds of illustrations I could give, and you'll probably think of a dozen more when I go through some of these. Uh, but when I'm sleepy, saying my prayers out loud not only keeps me from falling asleep, but it gives me, especially when I say it very loud, gives me an energy and an enthusiasm in my prayer I might not otherwise have. Uh, when I am uh, fearful or nervous, there are psalms that I like to sing or just like to pray out loud to the Lord. And as I go through those, I can tangibly feel the nervousness decreasing and going away. It has a calming effect upon me. I've had times where I don't want to do something and I grab myself by the proverbial neck and I say, Phil, you are going to do this. <laughs> You're going to do this. And uh, David talks to himself as well. He says in Psalm 42, 5, and he's talking to his soul. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I'm not going to go the direction you want me to go. I'm going to praise God. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to praise God. He's talking to himself. His words are helping him to get out of his depression. And the effect of words in the body are very far ranging. Uh, many times you can feel good physically, when you're joking with a friend and bantering back and forth. And you know, I've read medical articles that have observed the tangible differences that occur in the body with words that are sad, that are happy, but especially that are humorous. They see a remarkable change that comes over the body. And that's what Proverbs talks about when it says, laughter does good like medicine. Okay? It's, it's, it's affecting your body in a, in a positive way. Uh, the Proverbs speak of nagging words as being rottenness to the bones. Boy, you can feel the rottenness to the bones, can't you? And it also speaks of encouraging words as being refreshing. Your words make changes in you. Uh, I've had times where just mentioning the death of my niece has choked me up and brought tears to my eyes. Now, I had been thinking about my niece before, and I wasn't choked up then, but it was as the words came out that there was a focus that affected my body in a very tangible way. Okay? Uh, words have power. On the other hand, I remember complaining to Kathy about somebody who had viciously hurt me at my uh, first job that I, when we were first married. And the more I complained, the more bitter I became. And I found that I was becoming negative about the job and I wanted to quit. 
And that affected my work performance and it took away my desire to witness and to pray and it took away my joy in serving. My tongue was progressively poisoning me inside. And I had to repent not only of the outward actions that I was beginning to back away from, I had to repent of the negative words and the grumbling that was coming out of my mouth and to replace it with positive words and beginning to bless this person who had cursed me and to tell Kathy about the positive things in this person's life. And ooh, that hurt. I mean, that was, that was hard. And uh, telling this person why I was thankful to God that this person was brought into my life. And as I began to do that, I began to see my body was beginning to be bridled. But boy, I had to do it against my better wishes, you know. But it, it kept me from being poisoned. Words can send an adrenaline rush and make you weak or energetic, tired or relaxed. James says it's like a rudder steering a ship. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth. If you can control your speech, you can control your body and keep your body under control. And so I take these words very, very literally here. Our tongue is a rudder that helps us to take the ship of our body wherever we want it to go, even during the fiercest of storms. And you've seen this in, in your lives. If not in your life, you've seen it on movies, you know, where a person is uh, re responsible to save the whole world, you know, or to save somebody or other. And he's got to dash into something that looks like it's going to be suicidal. And he's there talking to himself and convincing himself. He needs to get out there and run. You know, we talk about this as psyching yourself up, right? But you're doing it with words. It's those words that have an impact upon your life. On the other hand, I've seen people talk themselves into sadness and anger and fear. And by the end of the conversation, they are a different person than they were at the beginning of the conversation. Now, other people's words can have a powerful effect upon us, but our own words are far, far more powerful in the effect that they have upon our bodies. Hastily said words can get the emotion of anger going. And before long, we're not just sinning with our mouth. We're sinning in other ways as well. Our tongues can definitely aggravate the problems. But let's take a look at some of the other negative things that our words can do to the body, to pride, to nature, and to others, verse 5, <clears throat> even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. While words are being used to build up and stroke the ego, they are simultaneously burning down and destroying the other person that we are, that we are talking about or comparing ourselves to. And it's just little simple words, but boy, you can feel those words as they're coming out, feeding that monster of pride. You can just feel it growing inside of you. And at the same time, you can watch through the demeanor of other people as those people are going down in flames. That's why Scripture says that words are weapons. They are, they, uh, the uh, Proverbs uh, liken it to arrow, arrows and daggers on the one hand and likens it to healing balm on the other hand. Proverbs says that the power of life and death, well, I wrote it down here, it says here, death and life are in the power of the tongue. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And we'll just stop there. Uh, once again, he shows that there is a physiological relationship between the tongue and the rest of the body that uh, we need to recognize. And even the world recognizes this. Some of you talk yourselves into depression by telling yourself and telling anybody else who will listen uh, <clears throat> that you can't do the things that God requires you to do. 
and that you feel terrible. Well, as you express how terrible you feel, you feel worse and you feel worse. And you're trying to convince other people that everything's against you and that life is terrible. And by the time you're done with your conversation, boy, you do feel terrible, you know? But it's your words that are having that impact upon you. It is poisoning you from the inside. And what you need to do is the opposite. You need to begin affirming God's truth by faith and refusing to allow the words that come out of your lips to poison you physiologically. There is something about how God has positioned the tongue in our body that makes it have that effect. And so he says, the tongue is so set among our members. He's talking about the body here. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. But notice the next phrase. It's not just the body, but even our sin nature is inflamed and sets on fire the course of nature. And so we need to take this seriously. We're never going to mortify, put to death our sinful nature if we do not harness the power of the tongue, if we do not get it in control. Your tongue sets things on fire. Now, we don't even need Satan. You know, our tongue is perfectly capable of setting a forest fire going all by itself. We don't need Satan. But verse 6 indicates that Satan's kingdom can manipulate and inflame the tongue as well. Uh, we don't need Satan to help us start that forest fire. It's capable on its own. But the last phrase indicates that it plays so easily into Satan's hand. It says, and it is set on fire by hell. This is saying that Satan, Satan's kingdom, can manipulate and use a believer's tongue. Can manipulate and use a believer's tongue if we do not resist him. And it's no wonder, you know, when you realize the power of the tongue for good and for evil, Satan would be a fool if he did not try to control people's tongues. He would be a fool if he did not try to do that. Now, some people will admit that Satan can maybe perhaps influence unbelievers' tongues, but a believer, no way. There's no way that a, a Satan could uh, have that kind of uh, influence and control. But it's clear here, he's talking to brethren in the church. It is their tongues he is concerned about, and concerning their tongue, he says, and it is set on fire by hell. He's saying a believer's can have their tongues set on fire by hell. Let me give you some examples. And you've got all kinds of examples, Genesis and through Revelation. I, I don't know if there's any in Revelation, but there's a lot in the Old Testament anyway. But here's one, Matthew 16. Simon Peter has just given one of the most remarkable testimonies of faith in Jesus as Messiah in the Gospels. And here's what Jesus responds to this testimony. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter may not even realize that the Father had revealed this to him. In fact, that's probably why Jesus has to tell him that, uh, that God had revealed this. He's saying, in effect, you've used your tongue in this godly way because of the Father's influence in your life. Okay? Jesus attributes this testimony to supernatural influence. Now, just minutes later, as Jesus explains how he must die and be raised again the third day, it says... Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. Now, Jesus saw another supernatural force that was at work in, 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 in Peter's life and was using Peter to tempt Jesus. Okay, he's looking straight at Peter, but he addresses Satan. Why? Because Satan was trying to deflect Christ 
from his life's course, from his ministry, and to bring temptation into Jesus' life. And if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to us if we are not on guard. In fact, everything that God does, Satan imitates. Isn't that true? You know, whether it's temples or circumcision or baptisms, everything he does, uh, God does, Satan imitates. And so you'll have uh, miracles that were performed by Moses. Um, well, immediately, uh, there's miracles that are performed by the, uh, the magicians there. Um, God prophesies through prophets. Well, so does Satan. 1 Kings 22 says that a lying spirit was put into the mouth of all of the prophets in the king's court there. And when Micaiah shared that little bit of news, it says, Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit of Yahweh go from me to speak to you? He wasn't even aware of the fact that a demon had spoken a prophecy through him. His tongue was able to be controlled uh, by a demon. God gave tongues? Well, so does Satan. Out in Ethiopia, uh, my, my father and Otto Shemebo heard a... Uh, uh, a witch doctor fervently praying in tongues to Satan. And they asked the people, oh yeah, they pray in other languages uh, to Satan. Uh, and, and this happens uh, uh, in almost every religion in the world. Uh, everything that God does, Satan tries to imitate. Now there is a, a prominent uh, author in Iowa by the name of Mark Bubeck, and he's written on uh, spiritual warfare and things like that. And he, he, he believes in tongues, but he points out that many of the people that come to him with a demonic in their lives, the demonic started when somebody laid hands on them and they began to speak in tongues, and it was a demon who was giving uh, this tongues into their life. And uh, uh, there was a, a, a guy that my, my uh, parents knew that um, he was asked to pray at a meal, <coughs> and I may have mentioned this before, he was asked to pray at a meal, and uh, he started to cry and say, I've, ever since I went to that Pentecostal service, they laid hands on me. I've not been able to pray. And so they just went on about business and, and continued praying. But later, he was delivered from that, and he was so thrilled for the first time, he was able to pray normally. So we've got to keep in mind, everything God does, Satan imitates, and Satan can even use the tongue of believers. Uh, <clears throat> Usually, he's probably going to just try to motivate you to say something bad that's going to tear down some other person and try to trap you. I read an interesting account of trapping in the old days. There are all kinds of traps, but the, the one that was given for weasels was very clever. Uh, weasels in the wintertime get white fur, and so if they're caught in a trap that draws any blood, it ruins the fur, and the fur was very, very valuable. So they had to figure out a different way of trapping these weasels that would not at all affect the fur. And... Somebody must have, at some point, had his tongue stuck to a lamppost. But uh, it gave him an idea. And what they did is they got a... Uh, he noticed that these weasels like to lick on shiny objects, especially if they're covered with some kind of grease. And so he would put out in the snow, planted down into the ground, these shiny metal objects, and a weasel would come up and put some grease on it. weasel would come up. And the moment its tongue, which has moisture on it, touched that surface, it would freeze to the metal and it could not get loose. In fact, it kept getting more stuck, you know, as it was moving along. And at the end of the day, the guy would come along and pick up all of these, uh, these uh, weasels. Well, I think that's what Satan wants to do with us, you know. He wants us to be sticking our tongue out when we should not be and capturing us. And we think, oh, why did I say that again? 
I've been trying and trying and trying, you know, to deal with this besetting sin. And there it goes again. It comes out and Satan's captured me. And uh, he has ruined my, my testimony. We are no match for Satan in ourselves. Jude tells us that even Michael the archangel was no match for Satan. Instead, what did he do? He relied on the Lord's strength. He says, the Lord rebuke you, right? And we need to rely on the Lord's grace as well. And so point J says, our strength is not enough. Look at verses 7 through 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. You get that? No man. This is no exceptions. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. I hope by now you're convinced this issue of speech is a very, very important issue in terms of our sanctification. So pervasive is the potential for evil and for good for our tongues, we need to persistently and consistently and systematically be seeking to sanctify our tongue by the resources that God gives to us so that we can present our speech to the Lord as uh, fit for His service. If we strive in our own strength, our striving will be futile. But if we strive in the power and the enabling of the Lord, we can have success like Job did. Now, God does empower the believer to have everything he needs to be perfect or mature in speech. Uh, for a believer, the things described in verses 9 through 10 absolutely should not be so. Let's read those, verses 9 and 10. With it we bless our God and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Okay, some other person made in the image of God. You're blessing God and you're cursing them? Well, you're actually, in a way, cursing God through them because you're made in His image. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. He does not say, ah, don't worry about it. You know, you're never going to be able to tame your tongue and so you can just forget about it, you know, confess your sins once in a while, but it's hopeless even fighting against your tongue. He doesn't come to that conclusion at all. Instead, the conclusion he comes to is that you have been so changed in terms of your nature, you have been so empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have so many resources and the means of grace that God has given to you, I don't want to hear your excuses about why you've flown off the, uh, the, the cuff with your tongue. He says, you don't have excuses for sins if you are a believer. Why? Because I have given to you all of the resources that you need to be able to conquer your speech and to have speech that is glorifying to God. Well, let's look at some of those resources, some of the reasons why these things ought not to be so. First of all, we have a new nature. And such speech, he says, is inconsistent with that new nature. He says, when you persist in ungodly speech, you're giving doubt to the fact of whether you have justifying faith. Okay, he says, think about it. Can a regenerate person perpetually and persistently spew out unregenerate speech? Now, we know Peter was regenerate, and he spewed out unregenerate speech, didn't he? And he grieved him. Lord, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Look at verses 11 through 12. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. He says if you're a new creature, you're going to be producing things that are consistent with what it means to be a new creature. Now here's the problem. Unfortunately, we have bad habits that have been developed 
from our old nature. And habits don't get broken overnight. And so what we need to do is we need to systematically be breaking down the old habits in our life. You're going to find some of that old language coming out. You're going to find from time to time your, your anger coming out and daggers in your, in your words. But he says, there is a way where you can break down the old habits and get to the point where the good speech is so easy, it's just like, you know, you don't even think about driving. You don't think about tying your shoes. It becomes a new habit of righteousness. Okay, and, and we're going to get to this um, probably next week. Uh, he's given us a new nature. Next, he's given us wisdom from on high, verses 13 through 18. Uh, we'll look at that next week. Next, the Spirit is replacing the motivations that promote ungodly speech. And here's the things we really need to work on. Uh, bitterness, envy, self-seeking, pride, deceitfulness, worldliness, sensuality, and even the demonic he mentions. And he's replacing those with purity, peace, gentleness, willingness to yield to others, mercy, good fruits, hatred of hypocrisy. I mean, you can see those motivations are going to have a profound impact upon our speech. If you are now replacing self-centeredness with a willingness to yield... Well, it's going to be reflected in your speech. A lot of the bad speech that comes out of our mouth with others is because we want to get our way, right? And so when you have yieldedness, when your pride is beginning to be replaced with the fruits of the Spirit, it's going to affect uh, your speech. And so many times we're working at things backwards. We're trying to shut our mouth. Oh, man, it came out again. What we need to be doing is working from the inside, and it will be changing what comes out. What did Jesus say? It's out of the heart that precedes all of these things, isn't it? And so the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. We can't ignore the heart. Next, chapter 4 shows that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can call upon Him to enable us to do what's impossible for ourselves to do. He's an expert at taming the tongue, and Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, James in chapter 4 says, the Holy Spirit is inside of you yearning to produce righteousness. And your flesh is yearning to do the exact opposite. And so there's this warfare going on. But who's stronger, your flesh or the Spirit? Praise Jesus, it's the Spirit. Then on another Sunday, we'll look at the principles of submitting to God and resisting the devil. And when we do that, Satan cannot set our tongues on fire by hell. Impossible. First John says, if you're guarding yourself, the evil one, the wicked one, cannot touch you. Now, if you're not guarding yourself, he can come in and influence. And then even the worldview mentioned later in chapter 4 helps in this process of sanctifying the tongue. We're not going to delve into those today. But what I do want you to commit to this morning, I want you to, first of all, recognize that there is a problem. Secondly, I want you to realize that there's a remedy for that problem. And I want you to begin committing to walking in the Spirit and begin taking the steps to undo whatever it is that's promoting the bad speech uh, that comes out. Confess it to others and confess it to God. And you might say, oh, that's so hard on my pride to confess it to others. Well, precisely, pride is what motivates some of our bad speech. So you're wanting to kill that pride, and it hurts to kill pride. Does it, doesn't it hurt to cruci crucify yourself? And he says, we need to be crucifying our flesh. Whoa, that hurts. But he says, if you systematically begin working on these things, you're going to begin to find a success. If necessary, ask someone to hold you accountable, to point out areas in your life. And don't get ticked off when he points out these areas of speech, you know, you need to grow in. You've got to pick somebody you think you're going to be able to take it from him, okay? And then just keep working on it and uh, keep working on it. Make your life goal to be perfect or mature in speech as Job was. 
And may God receive the glory as people look at our speech and they glorify our Father who is in heaven. Why would they glorify God? Because they say, there's something different about this person. He hits his finger with a hammer and what comes out? Nothing but good. I, I, I try to tick him off and what comes out? Nothing but good. This guy's weird. There is something different about him, okay? That's what we want the people to say about us. We're weird. We're different. God must be in that person. And so let's commit to asking for God's grace to conquer our... And don't ever excuse. Don't ever excuse sinful speech and say, oh, well, it's just my flesh. No, no, no. Grieve over it and say, God, take this away. Take this away. I want to be mature and blameless. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word. I pray you would help us to live in terms of it. Help us to rejoice in the power and all of the resources you've given to us to enable us to gain the maturity in our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bless this, your people. Father, if your word has come in like the piercings of a sword here and uh, that piercing was necessary, I pray that you would uh, fill the hole also with the healing balm of your Holy Spirit and encourage them, uh, Father, that uh, your uh, grace is sufficient, your forgiveness is full and it is free. And uh, Father, I know we all stumble in many areas that Christians do many times have coming out of their mouth things that, uh, that we shouldn't be saying. Forgive us, Lord, for that. Uh, we want our lips more and more to reflect your grace. And um, so I pray that uh, this, your people, would be encouraged, would be built up, and would be absolutely determined to keep working on their speech until uh, uh, it could be said of them as it was said of Job. Uh, they did not, in this difficult circumstance, sin with their lips. Father, be glorified in our speech, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.